Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman. You know, you may be a work-life activist and you don't even know it. You go to work, you have a life, and while you're not marching or protesting or burning your bra, you are unhappy with work and you are sick of the status quo. That's why I'm so excited to talk to Elisa Camahort-Page as my guest today. I met Elisa over a decade ago as the co-founder of a community called BlogHer. Since that time, Elisa's career has flourished, and she is now an author, writer, and speaker, and consults with top businesses to help people and organizations align their values with reality. So what does that even mean? Well, have a listen to the conversation, and I'll be back at the end to wrap things up. Work is broken. So is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is breaking things down so you can put them back together and make work something you can enjoy. Let's fix work together. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, everybody. Lori Rudiman here. I have an awesome guest today, someone who I have admired for over a decade. My guest today is Elisa Camahort Page, and she is the co founder of Blog Her and just has a storied career. So, Elisa, how are you today? I'm great today, Lori. How are you? Oh, I'm so grateful that you're on the show. I have just admired you from afar for so long, and we've connected a little bit on social media, but the great thing about podcasting is I get to invite cool women to chat with me for a half an hour. So thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much. That's so nice of you to say. Well, I really appreciate your time today because I have this philosophy that work is broken and we need to fix ourselves in order to fix work. Mm -hmm. But maybe we can start there with that core philosophy. Do you believe that work is broken and needs to be fixed? I think in most cases, yes, work is broken and needs to be fixed. And I think it's because the further up people get in a management chain, the, dis the more disconnected they allow themselves to be from when they weren't in that chain. And so there's this fundamental lack of empathy going uh, in both directions. Yeah, I agree with you. I feel that. Now, when you were working at BlogHer, you surrounded yourself first and foremost with friends, and then you built a community around your job. So what problems were you trying to solve there? And how did you specifically address that empathy mismatch in the marketplace? Well, you know, the interesting thing is that when Lisa Stone and Jory Desjardins and I started BlogHer, we were not, um, we did not know each other. Oh. Um, I met Lisa through a mutual friend. We cooked up the idea of BlogHer and decided to work on that project together in the very first meeting. I had met Jory soon afterwards at a conference and asked her to like help out. And the first project we worked on together, we weren't a company yet. We just decided to throw this conference for women who blog. Um, we put our credit cards down mm -hmm. to reserve a space. Mm -hmm. And we worked for four months together to produce what we called this labor of love. And now when I talk to entrepreneurs who are saying, oh, I need a co-founder, I need partners, how do I find them? I'm always like, you know, why don't you, why don't you date a little bit before you get married to a co-founder? Like work on a project together. You get to see so much about each other and your working styles and just as importantly, your communication styles. And, you know, doing something that doesn't have 
as high a stake as starting a company together or working on a team together is, is a great way to get to know people. And that's why I always tell people, if you have a chance to like contribute to a project, work on an open source thing, help someone produce something, volunteer, be on a board. Like it helps you meet people and see them in a working context before you like get married to them where you're going to work with them every day forever and ever. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wonder what surprised you about that first project that you worked on at BlogHer. What uh, pleasantly surprised you and what made you think like, wow, this is unexpected? Well, the thing that, of course, was surprising to all of us who showed up was that so many of us who were spending so much time at our computers all over the country, and certainly not all in tech capitals like Silicon Valley, where I live, were surprised to discover how, how not alone we really were, how many other women were out there finding support and finding content and information and finding help uh, on the internet. And so that was a wonderful surprise. But but the other you know thing that actually you know, instigated us to start a company was this idea that, wow, these women are smart and they're talented and a lot of them are stay at home or they've taken a break and they, and they don't know how to get back in to work. Um, and yet they're producing great content. They're building very dedicated communities. Um, maybe there's some way that we can help them turn that into work and by extension income and, and really help more women make money for what they're doing and what they're great at. You know, they always say, do what you love and the, the work will follow. Well, a lot of people were out there doing what they love. And we, were, we asked ourselves, could we make sure that the work will follow for them? That's great. You know, I think about that community a decade ago when I first learned about it. And some of the issues that we're talking about today, we were talking about in 2008 and 2009. So I wonder what your thoughts are about some of the conversations that we're having about work today. And are you optimistic or are you pessimistic about change when thinking about like wage inequality or I don't know, family leave or, or whatever. Me too, right? I mean, name the issue. Those were issues that were yeah. front and center and blog her, you know, in 2008. Well, there's two things that I'm pessimistic about or I feel downhearted about. Um, they may surprise you, actually. I mean, the first is that I feel like remote work and a management team's uh, philosophy about accommodating it has been very cyclical. And right now we're in a downward cycle where people don't know how to handle remote workers. And yet remote work makes it so much easier for people to participate at the level they really deserve to in so many areas. But I, I've been really surprised by how, how, um, how hard that is for people to really deal with. And I, I don't particularly understand it because I love to remote work and I have no problem having remote workers. So that's one thing I'm a little, you know, pessimistic about. Um, the second thing is just overall the, when I was part of the Silicon Valley.com boom in the late nineties, um, you know, there was a, a way for people to participate in that boom that was much more egalitarian because more of the work was here, like right here, 
And more of the work was, you know, full-time employees just at every level. You had people making lower salaries but, and people making stratospheric salaries, but they all got options and they all participated in that boom. When you look at, you know, some might call it boom times recently, in, especially in Silicon Valley, but by now, so much of the work is not just offshore or outsourced. So much of the work is now this gig economy approach where people aren't really employees. So not only do they not get benefits, you know, they don't get stability of any kind. And because of some, I think, you know, I'm generally not anti-regulation at all, but I do think that some of the regulation around um, corporate accounting has made it so stock options aren't even really a thing anymore for public companies in the way that they were. And so the people who get to participate in the boom times are, it's much more limited and the wealth gets concentrated much more in fewer hands. And so I really, and then when you add in automation to that, you know, where are the jobs, who's going to have them and what do we do for the people for whom there simply aren't enough jobs to accommodate. I don't think the answer is just retraining. I think we're, we're like you know, automating and globalizing ourselves right out of being able to have a, a workforce that's fully engaged. Well, so I'm, yeah, I'm with you. I really, I'm with you in that the future looks really dark and negative. If you um, take a deep breath and scan the uh, landscape of the politicians that we have in place who are also not uh, literate in technology and write policy that benefit only a few. But I wonder about that um, optimism and that passion that you had for tech and community back in the day. I know you still have it today. And so maybe you can tell us about how you're currently fixing work and what problems you're currently trying to solve in your new company and your new role. Yeah. So I think one of the problems we were always trying to save with, solve with Blogger was how can particularly women get compensated fairly for the work they do, the influence they have, um, and the power they have as consumers, as community leaders, um, as voices, how can they be recognized? And I think more than ever, the concept of entrepreneurism and turning your side hustles into your hustles is powerful, is the way to have more control over your destiny, is the way to remove yourself from being dependent on, um, you know, a working infrastructure that isn't loyal to you, you know, and, and I think a lot of us went through a lot of lessons about that lack of corporate loyalty back in the, you know, bus times. So I do think that there is um, a lot of attention to and resources for and information about really working for yourself and figuring out how to turn your passion into something that you can monetize and, and live on and live with. And so I think that's great. Um, the other thing I'm really focused on though is, um, you know, if, if, if indeed we are evolving to a situation where um, we're more and more going to be having lots of gigs or lots of side hustles and be more consultative in how we work, then I think more and more we are entitled to bring our whole selves into our working life and be able to, we have the right to be who we are. Um, and so I actually, with, with what I'm working on now, a lot of what I like to talk about is um, work-life activism balance. Because I feel like since the November 16 election, so many people I know who were never activists, who were never 
super plugged in politically, are fired up. They are wanting to make change happen. They want to know how they can do it. Um, and they don't want to feel constrained anymore to pursue that, um, helping the world the way they see fit at the same time that they're helping their families and they're taking care of themselves. And so, so could you give us an example of what a work-life activist looks like? How would this person operate in the corporate world or in the gig economy? What's the shape of that person and how are they getting their message out? Yeah, I feel like that person is someone who is not coming to work and proselytizing about anything, but is, you know, it can be open about the fact that just like other people might be going off to go to a kid's baseball game, I'm going off to go to a march. You know, that, that this is, should be okay to say, that this should be okay to share, and that we are um, individuals who, I feel like there's so much constipation around what to share online, particularly, and um, about our beliefs. And if you take the time to express yourself and your opinions respectfully, then I think that we need to get used to people doing that more frequently, more openly. Uh, and, and either you're going to decide I can't work with that person because I disagree on this political point with them. But I think most people won't decide to make that, that call. You know, most people are going to just absorb it like they absorb anything else about the person. Um, yeah, and, and hopefully you know, learn. It would be great if they also learned as well. We started sharing yeah. more about who we are and it starts to humanize what seems like radically opposite I don't know, points of view. But once Absolutely. you get to hear somebody, you get to understand the humanity and why they think the way they think. And you start to understand this is an individual, they have needs, they have wants, and they're not all that different from me. I get that. And I also think that when people are, I think we've seen it in social change can happen very quickly when people realize that they know and love someone who is personally impacted by um, an issue. So we've seen very, very rapid change. And the days of, uh, I think, not really owning your identity um, in the workplace and in public are, are kind of fading away. And I don't, I don't think today's younger generation um, is is really worried that much about it. They are who they are. They don't. They want you to know who they are. Um, what they believe is is part of their identity. And they, I think, they're a little better at balancing that activism and and advocacy and um you know philosophical belief into their identities than than those of us who are older who remember when you were never supposed to talk about religion or politics or any of that you know talk about the weather like nobody wants to talk about the weather anymore that's exactly right or we want to complain about it which is just fine well, yeah. yeah give me a break yeah. so hey <laughs> as we wrap up this section i really would love to hear how you know you're fixing work so when you think about your job at the end of the day who tells you that you're being helpful or you're successful or you're making a difference? Um, I know I'm fixing work when I work with my teams, when we are having fun, even when we're under stress or, or having, you know, having to solve problems. And some of the biggest, best laughs I've had have been with my team members. And that's what you'll remember long after you handled the stressful situation. So to me, uh, laughter is a measure of fixing work. Um, and, and the fact that I'm in touch with so many people who have worked with me, you know, over the last, I'm still in touch with people who worked with me 20 years ago, not just 10 years ago. 
And that's because to me, that's how you sustain relationships. And that's what networking is about. It's not about collecting quantities of people on LinkedIn. It's about who could you really still call and go have lunch with that you haven't actually worked together with in a decade. That's how I would measure it. Absolutely. Well said. Well, listen, everybody, when we come back, we're going to talk to Elisa more about her role as an author, advocate, and activist. And we're also going to ask her who's getting work right in 2018. So sit tight, everybody. We'll be right back with more Let's Fix Work. You know I love to brag about my friends. I also like to listen to them. And right now I'm listening to Jennifer McClure, host of the Impact Makers podcast. Jennifer is connecting with leaders across all industries to figure out how to make a difference at work and in the world. Here's what she's got going on. I believe strongly that each of us has the ability and the opportunity to positively impact people through our work and through how we choose to live our lives. The truth is that you've already impacted people in this world, even if you haven't been trying. I love what Jennifer has to say. And if you like what you're hearing right here on Let's Fix Work, You'll love what Jennifer's talking about on Impact Makers. So go to jennifermcclure.net forward slash iTunes and subscribe today. Welcome back, everyone. This is Lori Rudiman, and you're listening to Let's Fix Work. And my guest today is Elisa Camahort-Page. She's an author, advocate, and activist, and someone I have admired for a very long time. Elisa, are you ready for round two? Absolutely. All right. Well, here we go. You know, the world of work can be depressing, which is awesome for me because it gives me a podcast, but it's not awesome for the people who are in it. So we've talked a little bit about what's wrong with work, right? Mistrust, uh, just corporate stupidity, all that kind of stuff. I wonder what you like about the workforce. What's going right? What, what do you see and what do you like? Well, I do think there are some companies who are focusing more than ever on accommodating, allowing for more flexible work situations. And that allows more people to be in the workforce contributing. Um, I have a friend who works at Mozilla and is very, um, praises them a lot for how they behave in that way, how they trust their workforce, how they accommodate their workforce. I think a lot of times it's not the people, it's not the companies distrust everyone. It's that they know they have some people that are not doing well, not being efficient, that are taking advantage of the situation. And rather than address those specific employee issues, they create blanket statements. So I really you know, think that is at the core problem that happens is that people don't wanna deal with um, conflict and negative situations. And so they just make it suck worse for everybody. <laughs> hey, as an HR lady, I can confirm that. We manage to the lowest common denominator. Yeah. That's how that works, yeah. <laughs> but there are, I do think that there are companies that um, don't do that and do allow for more flexibility. And what was the other company that I know of? Oh, Automatic, um, the makers of WordPress. They actually don't have a headquarters. Um, oh, they, that's really interesting. Yeah. Wow. And then my friends who run Clever, which is an agency, um, they also don't have a headquarters. They come together physically on the regular. I mean, they do find uh, spaces where they come together to meet. Um, but other than that, they do accommodate. And you know what? These are going to be the companies, the people who have kids to raise or parents to take care of or, you know, any other of the myriad reasons, disabilities, you name it. These are going to be companies that people are looking for because, um, 
you know, they're so much more uh, efficient to work for and respect your time so much more. And listen, I don't have kids or, or ailing parents or a disability, and I still want to work for a company like that because spending two hours a day in the car is not like my idea of a really good time or an efficient use of my time. I don't so. disagree at all. You know, one thing I do worry about is this conflict avoidant trend that you just talked about, mm -hmm. because I see this not only in our societies, but in our workplace. And there is something to be said for bringing people together physically in a room regularly so that they can communicate and see micro expressions and facial mm -hmm. movements and body language, because you build a sense of trust so that when you go back to your computer and you have a contentious conversation, you can actually envision in someone's face in your brain and go, oh, hey, I know if I say this, they're going to be angry or they know I'm joking, right? So I think that physical uh, proximity to one another is so important and companies are really doing it wrong. They're either doing all remote work and wondering why it's failing or they're still sticking to that office model instead of doing that clever model or the automatic model where they bring people together regularly. But travel is expensive. That's part of this. Bringing people together is expensive. But what we can what we can do as individuals, um, I learned a lesson actually from my co-founder Lisa early on in Blocker, very before we were a company. Um, Jory and I were kind of similar in communication style, which was a rather terse communication style. We, I mean, even though we were all in the Bay Area, we only met at Drager's in San Mateo every two weeks or so in person because we were all in different parts of the Bay Area, which is very far flung. Um, and the rest of the time it was all email and occasionally Skype calls. And um, so Jory and I were kind of similarly terse. Um, and Lisa, whose mom is Southern and who I think was just raised, you know, just slightly differently than we were. She at one point said, guys, I just need a little humanity. Do you mind saying please and thank you? And like, hi, how's it going? That would just really help me. And forever after, and I, I just told her this recently because I don't think she realized, she changed how I communicate. Now when I write an email, I write it in my usual, like how I would write it if I didn't care how anybody felt about it. Boom, 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 done. And then I go back and I like to call it adding the humanity. I also go back and remove the disqualifying of myself. I remove the I thinks and I believes and don't you think or is that okay? Like all those kind of weakness phrases. I try to remove them if at all possible, but I add the humanity. And I do think we behave different. The reason being in person makes such a difference is because we behave differently. We would never talk to someone in the same room the way we do an email. And so if we could just bring a little bit of that humanity to more of our day-to-day -day communications, I think we would stave off a lot of the, the, the miscommunication that happens because we can add tone into email. I mean, I agree it's hard in a 140 or 280 character tweet, but in email, we can add tone. We can be more thoughtful about how we're communicating. We can figure out how to send a message, even a tough message, in a way that conveys empathy and understanding. And I, I think a lot of times we just convince ourselves there's just not enough time for that. And really, we're talking about like 30 seconds. And if you can avoid a 20 email exchange with escalating crankiness because you took that 30 seconds, you are ultimately going to save yourself time. So that's what I would think that every individual can think about when thinking about how to improve the experience of remote work. I love it. Amazing. And I don't disagree at all. And I know you have some opinions about the future of work that are tied into the gig economy and also tied mm -hmm. into automation and women. So I would love your take on what's going to happen with the future of work. You've talked a little bit about how you're pessimistic 
Are you yeah. optimistic at all? Anything good going to happen in the future of work? Well, you know what? I think it's interesting. I, I don't know enough. I'm sort of starting to, to learn about the concepts of universal basic income and see, um, you know, I don't see another option. Why should all the profits of a company get concentrated further and further into smaller and smaller hands when it is our infrastructure as a country that allows all of these companies to be able to succeed? And so is there a time when we'll need to give people universal basic income? And then there's people who will tell you, oh, but people don't want income. They want meaning. They want purpose. Jobs give you meaning and purpose. And I'm like, well, yeah, you know, but it's, it's, um, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? If I don't have shelter and food and, and the ability to take care of myself, I'm really not thinking about meaning and purpose too much. So, and, and imagine the things that people could create and do and contribute if we could take care of that fundamental, those basic needs. Um, and I don't know how we avoid that going forward. I haven't heard anybody come up with a scenario where we avoid the situation of either having an incredible continuing have and have not split that just gets worse and worse and worse and is horrible for society, in my opinion, or if we come to a place where we facilitate the kind of universal basic income that, and some approaches to this happen, first of all, they happen in the Middle East um, because some of those countries make all this money from oil and they don't have enough work for the actual citizens. So some, some of them distribute income, but even Alaska, Alaskans get like a little payment from the oil industry every year. So take that writ large from the tech industry. Like, I don't see what's wrong about that. I think that would be really interesting to see what people could accomplish in life. You know, I don't disagree with you at all. In my second podcast, we had a guest by the name of Scott Santons. And if you don't know him, you should look him up. Mm -hmm. And the whole episode was about universal basic income. He's one of the foremost thinkers in America on that subject. And he talked about something called the Einstein effect. Imagine how many people out there are as smart and brilliant as Einstein, but they're working during the day at Starbucks and they're driving an Uber at night because they can't afford rent in the Bay Area. And so you are, you are like-minded with this audience. Uh, we are all about universal basic income on the show. Yeah, absolutely. So I wonder, as we start to wrap up, if there's one message about work that you could leave with our listeners, what, what do you think it is? What are you thinking about when you think about work? What I think about a lot is the difference between satisfaction and happiness. And this all started long ago when I had a boss who came in over me who did not know anything about what I did. And so I gave him this whole presentation on everything that my department was supposed to do and how few people we had to do it. And I said, you know, it's very hard to keep morale up when people, this was during the bust times, you know, yeah. it's very hard to keep morale up when people come to work every day and know they can't do a good job because they just don't have enough time and bandwidth and resources. And he says, well, can't you lower their expectations? You know, Elisa, the difference between, you know, um, happiness is the difference between reality and expectation. So can't you lower their expectations of Wait. what they're expected to do? Wait, he said this to you? Oh, yeah. And so I said, that would be so awesome. Will you talk to the executive staff to lower their expectations? Because <laughs> I'd, I'd love that. You know, and he just kind of went, oh, yeah, good point, right? What can he say? Yeah, but I actually right. don't think, I think the delta, the delta between your expectations and reality is your level of satisfaction. You can be happy but not satisfied with things in your life. You can be satisfied with your life and still be very unhappy. And to me, when I think about what's happiness, Happiness is the delta between your values and who you are at your core 
and how you act on them. And the closer you can be to acting on your values in your life, the really truly deep, more deeply happy you can be because you're, that is living your purpose. That is living with meaning. And um, I just, why are so many people unhappy with work? Because their work doesn't contribute to them living closer to their values. And so really that's what I want to do. I want to figure out how I can take my values and turn that into work. And that's why I wrote the book I wrote. That's why I'm working with the clients I'm working for and consulting because I'm helping other people reach their potential, which is close to my values. And, and that's, you know, I think uh, I'm a, I can be both satisfied and happy, which is the ultimate goal. Brilliant. I love it. Well, listen, um, you made me think about something that I might want to do, which is to have an episode on this podcast where people tell stories about the stupid things their bosses have said to them. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> oh my God. That would be an endless podcast. Oh, I know. I know. And it'd be funny, but also incredibly depressing. So we don't yeah, want that. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, Elisa, why don't you tell everybody what you're doing right now and where they can find you on the web? Absolutely. So uh, my website is elisacp.com. You can learn about where I'm speaking. You can learn about the consulting work I do. And you can also learn about my book, which is available for pre-order now and coming out in September. It's called Roadmap for Revolutionaries, Resistance, Activism, and Advocacy for All. I co-wrote it with Carolyn Geran and Jamia Wilson. It's a handy guidebook for regular people who are fired up and want to know what do I do with all this energy and desire to make change. There are case studies, interviews, guidelines, and checklists. It's not, you know, it's not geared towards the 100% activist who's always been in it and will always, it's, it's for you who are feeling like you want to do more than you've done before and how do you get started and how do you focus your energies? Um, and you can, there's a, there's a tab about the book there too. I love it. That's amazing. Well, listen, I am both an activist, a feminist, and also an HR lady, so I like checklists. So that's really good <laughs> to hear. It's really cool. Well, Elisa, thank you so much for being on today's show, and I really appreciate your time. Thanks again. You're so welcome, Lori. All right, everybody. We'll be right back. Sit tight. Hey, are you ready to podcast like a pro? Then you need a secret weapon, someone who can make it easy, where all you have to do is show up and be the host. At One Stone Creative, that's what we do. Everything. Yeah, everything. Imagine, every time you sit down to record, you know what your topic is. You want a script? We can do that too. Then you record it, drop it in a folder, and that's it. Our team will take it from there. Production, show notes, uploads, blog posts, social media assets, swipe copy, like I said, everything. Book a call with the podcast strategist today. Just go to onestonecreative.net slash podcast. That's onestonecreative.net slash podcast. And we'll take it from there. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Elisa Camahort-Page. I really admire her and I hope you connect with her online and pre-order a copy of her book, which is called Roadmap for Revolutionaries, Resistance, Activism, and Advocacy for All. And we're going to have a link to that in our show notes. Let's Fix Work is a production of One Stone Creative. Audra Casino and Megan Doherty are awesome and they make this show great. Please connect with us at Let's Fix Work or find me at L. Rudiman all over social media. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, review it, and share it. If you don't like what you heard, please don't leave me a one-star review. That's such a pain. Just reach out to me. Don't be conflict avoidant. I'm at hello at letsfixwork.com. 
And that's all for this week. We'll see you again next time on Let's Fix Work. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Fix Work. Wouldn't you love to get your hands on Lori's no-holds-barred, honest HR handbook for employees and pros alike? Download it for free at lorirudiman.com slash DIYHR. 